0: Hello, welcome to the Healing of Emotional Wounds podcast series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Today we finish our question and response sessions. Following this, there will be two podcasts with a difference. We will take the ancient Taoist meditation text, The Secret of the Golden Flower, translated into German from Chinese by Richard Wilhelm, and for which Carl Jung wrote a lengthy commentary in 1929. We will explore its background, philosophy and spiritual position, and then its relevance to depth psychology. It may be of interest for you to know that we are currently running a meditation group using the Secret of the Golden Flower as our study text. If you wish for more details and you wish to join us, please contact thepilgrimquest at gmail.com or find contact details at www.alanmulhern.com. Now to our remaining questions and my reflections upon them. Are chakras real? All the key concepts used in depth psychology, such as the ego, the unconscious and defences, are simplified models attempting to explain highly complex phenomena. The concept of chakra is similar, but here one can think of it as a symbol. Although chakras are supposedly located in the spinal column, subtle matter, rotating disks of energy, profoundly influencing every aspect of the human being, none of them can be called real in the sense of a leg or an arm. It is better to ask if such concepts are useful. Have they stood the test of time, and do they lead to deeper inquiry? Many ideas coming from the East have been useful for thousands of years. Chakras are described in the Upanishads written over a thousand years before Christ and have a long oral history before then. They are also very suited to a spiritual, psychological and symbolic view and are very compatible with modern spiritual thinking in the West. The question of chakra reality may be rephrased. Does chakra symbolism help to contact the transformative powers in the psyche? Our next question does psychotherapy necessarily have a spiritual dimension most of psychotherapy does not have an explicitly spiritual dimension only certain parts of it do so even in those schools which embrace a spiritual dimension not all institutes and groups within them practice it to the same extent most clients do not come to a therapist for spiritual matters but do so for reasons of painful emotional suffering nevertheless A spiritual dimension can provide the vital healing and transformative ingredient required for progress. Although in my view, this should not be promoted to the client as the only way forward. It should arise organically and naturally in the healing process. Can Christianity be integrated with such healing processes? In its more benevolent aspects, with its emphasis on love, forgiveness and higher transcendent powers there are certain elements that can match psychotherapy with a spiritual dimension. Psychotherapy and counselling are now offered in parts of the Catholic Church. The harsher aspects of Christianity, such as insistence on sin and a highly judgmental ethical position, can be an obstacle to psychological exploration. Can all religions be integrated with a spiritually orientated psychotherapy? Insofar as A religious or spiritual system creates a sacred space, be it through contemplation, prayer, meditation, architecture, ceremony or ritual. Its contribution can be integrated with this type of psychotherapy. The access to the deep psyche and its transformative energies has always been the province of religion and spiritual endeavour, whose practitioners are the historical spiritual specialists – However, religious systems of mass acceptance may rapidly convert into ideologies and operate as instruments of control, especially when evangelical or authoritarian they become a hindrance to a genuine, open, authentic inner journey. Even the moral codes of religious and spiritual movements, historically and socially indispensable though they may be, can be an impediment when imposed upon the living process of the encounter with the deep psyche. The injunction to love one's neighbour may be an obstacle if one actually needs to enter one's darkness and shadow to discover what is really there. The exhortation to surrender the ego may be counterproductive if what is required is that the ego and its platform of support should be reinforced, not weakened. The recommendation to give up one's family and career may be damaging if it leads to psychological breakdown. The suggestion that one should concentrate on helping others is crippling if the subject does not know how to help himself. The moral perspective of the deep psyche is quite different from that of consciously constructed systems, no matter how ethically plausible they are. While the ego is, as a rule, selfish, the deep psyche is self-orientated, big S, clearly seen in dreams which so often contradict the orientation of consciousness and insist on the greater reality. This inner directing system and intelligence is concerned with the total psyche of which consciousness and its ego subject are only parts. Thus, from the perspective of the self, the moral concern is that the ego is in harmony with the deep psyche, not that it should be in harmony with the egos of others. This may account for the unusual moral perspective and actions of those on a genuine path of spiritual growth. They do not follow normal rules and edicts, because they are listening to and following the promptings of the deep psyche. Psychotherapy may differ from traditional religions with respect to a number of issues. Firstly, the shadow, from a psychotherapy perspective, needs to be explored and approached uncritically, not judged and rejected. Secondly, sexuality needs to be brought fully to consciousness, revealing so much of the psyche, such as its deep attachment needs and longings, not treated judgmentally. And thirdly, the question of ethics, which for the psychotherapy journey needs to be developed from within and emerged later in the process, rather than in many religions where it is accepted from without and structures the moral position of the subject from the start. Individual growth is a journey of discovery, not the acceptance of externally imposed rules. Are there particular psychological aptitudes or skills favouring the work of psychotherapy and healing? Yes, Such skills may be thought of as types of awareness, required to progress from basic to advanced work in psychotherapy and spiritual work. The more advanced of these are activated in healing individuation experiences. Together, they form a spectrum of intelligence of working in the inner world. These positive attitudes include capacity for introspection, ability to contact and express deep emotion, as well as accessing their truth. An ego with the capacity to link to the unconscious, but also to be relatively independent. To see oneself more objectively. Acceptance of self-responsibility. Awareness that one's psyche consists of different interrelated parts. The existence of a metaphorical and symbolic attitude, so as to contact and work with the deep psyche. The ability to mobilise inner awareness, so that the deepest parts of the psyche especially healing intelligence, can be reached. For most psychotherapy, perhaps with more limited and achievable aims, not all of the above are required. All will be needed, however, for a complete psychotherapy, which has a considerable measure of healing, character transformation and individuation. The last two, symbol, facility and inner awareness, are particularly activated in healing processes. When the client stagnates, it is useful to consider which of the above may need developing. What is the role of the psychotherapist in this healing process? The practitioner provides a container for the healing process to unfold, contributing healing energy and experience. Psychotherapists deeply involved with healing are never anonymous figures since their personalities and healing energies are vital for the journey of the client. Clients may feel they know their therapist well at some deep level, although they know little about their personal life. The relationship between client and psychotherapist co-evolves with the integration of the psyche of the client. As this relationship deepens, the integration process within the client can move to new levels. Healing is stimulated by synergy, interreaction, and relationship. More specifically, it is a shared field that is constellated, within which the participants, therapist and client, enact their unique drama. Is psychotherapy necessary for healing in the psyche to take place? Care for the sick has taken place, as far as paleoanthropologists can gather that is, those anthropologists who study ancient humans, throughout human history and beyond, back to early hominids. One of the earliest skeleton finds, dated at around 1.5 million years old, is of a Homo erectus female who died with an advanced state of a disease called Hypervitaminosis A. It is not possible to survive this disease to such a stage without being cared for. This remarkable find suggests that care existed among Homo erectus, who is our genus, but a different species, which preceded Homo sapiens by over a million years. Even at this early period, special treatment of the dead suggests concern for the grief of the surviving. Another example is of a skull of a ten-year-old child dated at 530,000 years old, over half a million years ago, which was found to have a debilitating birth defect called craniosynostosis, by which joints fuse in the skull before growth is finished, thus impairing brain development. Again, intensive care must have been provided. The archaeological record indicates that Neanderthals, half a million years ago, showed care of chronically ill individuals. More recently, among Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens, around 100,000 years ago, there are burials of the dead. So it is hypothesised that consciousness of individual mortality had evolved. Later, around 40,000 years ago, precious objects and even flowers were buried with the deceased. In the history of human civilization, from the Egyptians onwards, There are advanced burial ceremonies, beliefs in the afterlife and resurrection. Healing myths lie at the heart of civilization, and it is only reasonable to suppose that given the precarious conditions of humanity throughout its history, concern for care, healing and medicine has always existed. The New Testament shows the fascination for miracles of healing the sick where little distinction is made between mental, physical and spiritual malaise. The history of shamanistic practices clearly shows healing that embraced not only physical conditions, but also of emotional and spiritual distress. Psychotherapy is a modern phenomenon; It arose in the late 19th and 20th century out of the spiritual vacuum created by the advance of Enlightenment thinking. It is highly individualised, verbal concentration on mental and emotional conditions, thus breaking from the more holistic traditions of earlier generations. Psychotherapy is a specific historical creation. Its individualised dialogic form and its methods of contacting the unconscious form a particular development for treatment arising in Western civilization at a specific juncture. Healing has taken place for thousands of years without psychotherapy. Other forms of healing will come into being and replace this one, which in the future may seem as antiquated as alchemy. However, the process of individuation and healing is an archetypal journey, and as such, its broad features are shared with initiation, creation, healing myths and rituals throughout human history. Psychotherapy has a unique contribution to play in this process because of its requirements for extensive character analysis and subsequent integration of the material arising from the unconscious. Can psychotherapy also be a block to this healing process? Rigid psychotherapy, over-intellectualised systems, poor training all contribute to inadequacy of provision. Moreover, Psychotherapy easily lends itself to mind dominance, an insistence to analyse, use models, understand, rationalise and reduce phenomena, thereby reinforcing a split from the body, its energies and emotions. The very word analysis betrays its orientation, psychoanalysis. Psychotherapy may also be restricted by political correctness, conceived of and practised in a rigid and limited manner. Psychotherapy can block access to the deeper psyche and its potential for transformation. The methods outlined here of imaginal body work is only one step in the direction of contact with the healing intelligence of the imaginal body. Many other radical and deep methods exist, including those in other healing disciplines. Is it necessary to adopt a model such as the archetypes of the collective unconscious to achieve healing? Healing and growth in the psyche do not require the acceptance of any particular model of the psyche. However, it is common to adopt one in the early stages for guidance on what can be a difficult and confusing path. Ironically, the ego needs something to hold on to before it can let go. Belonging to a religious group can amount to the same thing. The model provides initial security and meaning but needs substantial modification and change as deeper work is engaged in. Jung outlined a the theory of archetypes as underlying determinants of human character and consciousness. The classic pathway of a Jungian psychotherapy is said to progress through an encounter with these archetypes, the shallow, the animus anima and the self in particular. Some therapists of a spiritual persuasion find such ideas illuminating. However, the core requirement, as presented in these podcasts, is simple inner awareness, a letting go of ego consciousness, a process of listening, attunement and integration. Two of the most important ingredients of this process are, firstly, the quality, warmth, commitment and enthusiasm of practitioners, no matter what their school, and secondly, the courage and dedication of the client. These qualities cannot be modelled. Models and preconceived structures, although indispensable at the macro level to schools of psychotherapy, are not directly helpful to the healing and individuation journey at the micro level of psychotherapy. They are only indirectly helpful to the practitioner and can be a positive hindrance to the client. Every individual's pathway is unique. Models are conscious formulations of the rational mind. The deep psyche does not work according to formula. It is dynamic and endlessly surprising. As soon as a model is imposed upon it, this creative energy is hampered, goes underground and can even become destructive when repressed and not allowed expression. The best approach for clients is to temporarily leave aside all models and preconceptions so as to enter an honest, unpremeditated meeting with their own suffering complexes and deep psyche. The best approach for the practitioner is, once learnt, to enter the consulting room leaving in the background such models so as to work with the living psyche. However, once out of the consulting room practitioners should, in my view, adopt a continual learning disposition and engage with the roots of their discipline. This is best done in a parallel process by working in depth with their own and their clients' psyches. Can all wounds be healed? Some wounds cannot be healed. However, there is an enormous difference between being unconscious of a wound and knowing it exists. Further development may require integrating and taking responsibility for it. It is a further leap to work through the wound. This may result in its reduction or even its disappearance. Different levels of healing are possible. Temporary healing is also of importance, for while the deep wound may return, its temporary diminishment allows growth to take place and prevents negative acting out, such as destructive attacks on close or intimate relationships. What is the wounded healer? This is one of the most persuasive descriptions of the healing practitioner. Ideally, it describes those who have transformed but still consciously carry their wounds and are thus especially capable of helping others. This is its positive aspect. It can operate also negatively when a wounded practitioner needs the wounded client to enhance their sense of identity. Creative sublimation of the therapist's wounds is frequent. In what way can those on the spiritual path benefit from psychotherapy? There are at least seven such benefits. Firstly, a thorough character analysis and the building of genuine self-knowledge of character is a foundation for spiritual work. Unless this is done, the subject is likely to fall back into unconscious complexes and shadow material. Secondly, in the spiritual journey, subjects need grounding and rooting in their ordinary lives and character, especially when strong spiritual experiences are present. It is simply too easy and dangerous to be carried away by transpersonal energy. Even for those well advanced on the spiritual path, it is easy to be overcome by complexes and to become inflated, God complexes, megalomania and the like. Thirdly, the contrary position is also true. There are many on the spiritual path who feel they cannot live up to their ideal, and are working through the roots of such problems in their character is required, rather than perpetuating a cycle of excessive projections onto spiritual leaders, followed by disenchantment, guilt or shame. Fourthly, an intensive psychotherapy insists on examining the shadow very closely, something that can be neglected on the spiritual path. Advantages of such work include greater self-knowledge, integration of the psyche, and release of energy that has been dammed up in the shadow. Fifthly, spiritual groups sometimes downplay the ego in favour of spiritual experience. Some Eastern methods recommend the transcending of the ego altogether. Psychotherapy is concerned that the ego is relativized and even surrenders its dominance. Fundamentally, it looks for a readjustment and reshaping of the ego and its better alignment to the deep psyche. Sixthly, Spiritual groups have more than their fair share of wounded people who are seeking healing through contact with the group itself. The knowledge of the roots of suffering in their character and early background is invaluable knowledge. They are seeking healing in the first place owing to wounds in their psyche. In more serious cases of borderline and psychotic conditions, an elementary knowledge of psychiatry and diagnosis is essential since not recognising the psychological roots of emotional disturbance and breakdown may be full of risk. Recommending that fragile people continue with ego-dismantling practices in the name of supposed spiritual advancement is ill-advised, to say the least. When this is compounded by unrecognised psychological problems of spiritual leaders, the consequences can be dangerous and sometimes fatal. Elementary psychological knowledge should be as available as a first aid kit. Seventhly, spiritual leaders may need particular help, not only to protect themselves from inflation and power dynamics, but also from the intensity of exaggerated projections put on them from their followers. They too suffer nervous breakdown, anxiety, paranoia, depression, and can benefit from help. Especially when there is no one in their spiritual group to whom they can turn. Spiritual leaders may have problems of particular emotional and psychological concern. After all, why have they spent such time and energy in the healing process? The group should not provide the only pathway for their healing, which should be self generated. Are there one or many sources of healing in the psyche? The body has innumerable protection devices, defence systems, repair operations and healing mechanisms. Some of these are simple to grasp, while others are of immense complexity and beyond our understanding. It is difficult to comprehend or prove that there is one central coordinator of this biological system of healing, though it may exist. Rather, it seems, healing intelligence is distributed throughout the body and there are numerous ways in which it is activated and operates. Philosophically, such a view is pluralistic rather than monistic, many sources of multifaceted healing intelligence rather than one. Jungian psychology has both monistic and pluralistic possibilities. On the one hand, the self is the archetypal centre of order, a unitary principle guiding the psyche, rather like the idea of one God. On the other hand, there are archetypes which have positive healing power. From the healing perspective in these podcasts, there are widespread sources of healing intelligence in the psyche, coming from different centres. Inner awareness, when brought into proximity of an emotional wound, can promote healing activity beginning with catharsis. Some wounds are capable of self-healing, while others may require the action of other parts of the psyche. To use the language of chakras, some centres, such as the heart or the brow chakra, possess healing properties influencing other centres that carry wounds. Healing intelligence may manifest itself through dreams and visions, which are capable of reorientating the subject's life. It follows, therefore, that all levels of the psyche possess healing intelligence. Firstly, consciousness has a portion of itself, inner awareness, that has healing properties, when in contact with the area of suffering. Secondly, the personal unconscious, containing emotional centres that have pain and trauma, is capable of self-healing or the healing of one centre by another. Thirdly, the collective unconscious, the deepest layer of the human psyche, possesses the most powerful source of healing intelligence, the self. In the practice of psychotherapy, both these viewpoints are useful and can be complementary. The self as the inner unifying director of numerous localised healing sources in the psyche. From the practitioner's point of view, this is not a contradictory position. Does psychological type influence the healing process? The alignment to the deep psyche the capacity to listen and absorb the messages of the inner world, the requirement of symbolic work, the necessity of intense emotional experience, clearly require an introverted orientation and developed intuitive feeling functions, typical of Jungian psychotherapy. Other therapies may stress different capacities, some requiring more emphasis on cognitive faculties or practical orientation, while others stress social relations and group work. From the Jungian point of view, thinking functions, though initially useful, can be a block to deeper alignment to the psyche, while the sensation function, practical and matter-of-fact orientation, needs to recede so that the less substantial but no less real inner world can come to the fore. A dominant, extroverted function needs to lessen, and an introverted orientation needs to develop. Myers-Briggs, following Jung, added the axis of perception versus judgment, the former indicating a tendency in some people to use looser flowing states, whereas judgment types require a tight structure to organise their mental world. Clearly, the alignment to the deep psyche requires the former rather than the latter, greater perception rather than judgment, corresponding to Jung's stress on and preference for synthetic rather than analytic attitudes. In summary, the Jungian viewpoint is that access to the deep psyche is promoted by introverted and perception, go-with-the-flow type processes, as well as feeling and intuitive functions. However, while access to and working with the unconscious is promoted by these functions, the end result of healing and development often requires rebalancing of the psyche. Thus, the highly introverted may need to develop extroversion. The predominantly intuitive may need to develop more practical sensation functions. Those who are mainly feeling-orientated may need to develop thinking processes, while those given to loose flow states, perception, may need to develop more structure and organisation. The healing process may be understood in a similar way. People tend to heal themselves using their dominant functions. Thus, a feeling type may use the heart function first and foremost. One observes this clearly in scans and visualisations, where access to heart energy is rapid, and the power of its healing function is dominant. Similarly, an intuitive type will find easier access to the sixth chakra, which is the centre of intuition, and this function may play a chief role in healing operations. Someone with an exaggerated thinking function has a distinct healing disadvantage. While lighter wounds may heal by themselves, deeper wounds will tend to be repressed. Such a person will need to develop the feeling or intuitive function in order to work more closely with the healing capacity of the inner world. If this proves impossible, then the style of therapy might shift from emphasising the inner world to focusing on the relationship of the subject with their family, friends, work and so on as the vehicle to promote rebalancing change. In the case of those with dominant feeling functions, using the heart chakra, such people may have a paradoxical disadvantage with regard to deep wounds. Their feeling functions and heart chakra may be so damaged that natural reparative capacities are compromised and not functioning properly. Scans and inner work can portray it as a wasteland, a dead place, And here one is warned of a depletion of healing energy in the heart, which happens to be their chief healing function. In such a case, knowledge of the inner world and its dynamics can help, since by switching the emphasis to the sixth chakra, that is the brow, and developing the intuitive function, this powerful centre can heal wounds in other parts of the deep psyche, including the heart. How is healing connected with individuation and wholeness? As opposed to more specific or localised healing, the individuation process posits a healing of the psyche as a whole. Here, many areas of the personality are involved. Some character components are challenged and received, while others are encouraged and come to the fore. The role of the ego is modified, as the information, feelings and energy of the deeper psyche are allowed to express themselves. Higher transcendent forces in the deep psyche may be freed and become operative, promoting great change and reform. In particular, the acknowledgement of the existence of some other centre outside of the ego, pressing for change, reform and development, is central. In other words, a number of components of the psyche which were previously underused or neglected become operative and integrated. Greater wholeness is achieved. The word to heal in Old English, healen, means to make whole, to restore to health. How? Thus the words wholeness and health reveal their common etymological root. While wholeness necessarily implies a greater integration of different components of the psyche, the healing of the individuation process is an expression of the integration and intelligence in the psyche as a whole. The psyche is not simply an amalgamation of bolted-on separate components. Its whole functioning is an integrated intelligence. The greater the alignment and integration of consciousness with this totality, the more advanced is the healing and individuation process. And final question, what has love and death got to do with it? Love is the supreme positive force of the human psyche and is the essence of the healing process. No love, no healing. A great deal of clients' talk in psychotherapy concerns their relationship and damage to the love essential to their well-being. Psychotherapy with a spiritual dimension focuses on how this love can be found in the inner world, independent of having to experience it in the outer, a form of love within the self. The natural course is to love another, of which the love between child and mother and that of lover with lover, have always been considered supreme exemplars. This is a type of mirroring in which one's truth and essence is discovered, reflected back to oneself through the eyes of the beloved, and one's uniqueness experienced. One becomes alive. This eternal moment is captured in Winnicott's inimitable description of the child, who looks up into the eyes of his mother and sees himself in their loving reflection, himself in her. She too looks into his eyes and sees the reflection of herself, her in him. This loving interpenetration is a symbiosis, a mutual interpenetration, a sharing of essence, a dual unity. One's own individuality and separateness is temporarily annihilated in this ecstatic shattering of the ego. Beauty is its reality. Such love is an unconscious climactic for those fortunate enough to experience it. It happens without effort. However, so much of existence is lived in its shadow. The wake-up call for love is death. For what is the essential one can take into the night of death? Love is the only force one can take. Almost all who are about to die instinctually gather the love around them as a garment that can protect them. It is the only essential meaning at the end of life. No amount of fame or fortune can withstand this terrible reality. Only love and the knowledge that comes through love can do this. For those who do not have the good fortune of having loving others surround them in their death, Then there are two other possibilities. Firstly, the accumulated experience of love within oneself, the memories of those one has loved and been loved by, and secondly, to be in touch with the source of this love in oneself, to know the experience of loving oneself, the beauty of being alive, and this life one has lived. The latter, though esoteric, is a possibility. It is, of course, better to realise this long before one dies. On the one hand, to open the heart and practice love. And on the other, to activate integrative healing intelligence throughout the psyche, to experience healing and wholeness. That concludes our questions and reflections. I hope you can join me next week when we explore the fascinating ancient Taoist text, The Secret of of the golden flower.